Please turn in your Bibles to 1 Peter, 1 Peter chapter 1. We will be continuing in our series in 1 Peter, and this morning we'll be camping out in verses 6 through 9. To give us a little context, I'd like for us to read verses 3 through 9. The Apostle Peter writes, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Verse 6. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Would you pray with me? Father, it is the need of this hour for your spirit to fill our hearts. It's the need of this hour, Lord, for us to Lord, more greatly understand, to more greatly comprehend the salvation you have for your people, the inheritance that awaits your saints. And Lord, not just what lies ahead, but how this future is to affect us now. So Father, we ask that you would fill our hearts with joy this morning, with perseverance, with love, with every fruit that you will. Father, we love you and we ask your blessing now on us. In Christ's name, amen. I remember a couple of years ago when my wife Erin, she told me that she was pregnant. In the moment that she told me the reality that there was a real baby in her womb that would one day come into the world and breathe the same air, that changed my life. That changed both of our lives. Our hope in the reality of the future changed our present. We did strange things that we would not have done otherwise. Here's something a single man never does, buys a book on childbirth. Single men just don't do that, but we did that because we had an expectant hope of the future. We read books about childbirth. We prepared a nursery. Friends and family threw Aaron baby showers. Aaron quit her job. We made sure that our finances were in order. And we also experienced a change in feeling and mindset, a change in our affections, a change in our joy. Our hope in the reality of the future filled our hearts with joy and anticipation. And the reality of our son's future birth happily affected our present. Well, brothers and sisters, in a similar way, Christians are those who look forward. To be a Christian is to look forward. And this forward-looking hope changes our present. Our context this morning is in 1 Peter. And so far, the Apostle Peter, he's opened his letter and resounding praise to God for the salvation of elect exiles. 
And as we've seen, this salvation involves a new birth. It involves conversion. It involves regeneration. And a new birth that is, is a conversion to a future hope. So even though this conversion has present implications, we're called to an inheritance, to a forward-looking hope. The Christian mind is one that's fixed on the future. The believer looks forward to an incorruptible heavenly inheritance. He awaits the glorious revelation of Jesus in the last time. And the believer lives in the present in light of this certain future. And because of all this, the Christian has a moral imperative a moral imperative to fix his gaze upon Christ and the coming salvation. Now, why do I say this? Why do I say that there's this, this moral imperative that's laid upon the Christian? Well, brothers and sisters, it, we, we know this because though First Peter, the first 12 verses, there's no direct exhortation. There's no direct command. There's no explicit exhortation. Yet all the content in those first 12 verses are in anticipation of the first command of First Peter. And that is in verse 13. Would you look at verse 13? There the apostle, he says, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So what's going on here? What's Peter getting at? What we have is, is 1 Peter 1 is, we have the apostle, he's explaining to his hearers what their future hope of salvation is, how these saints react to that future hope of salvation, and how all of this ought to lead them to gird up their minds, to gird up their minds and more fully anticipate that salvation that lies ahead. This is what's going on in these first several verses of 1 Peter. So last week, Alex expounded quite wonderfully the, the believer's certain hope of future glory. This morning, we're focusing on how that certain hope affects the believer now how it affects us in the present time. The main idea of 1 Peter 1, 6 through 9 is that because of hope of future salvation, the believer responds with perseverance, with love, and with joy. Because of hope of future salvation, the Christian, the believer, responds with present perseverance, present love, and present joy. So this morning, we're going to be focusing on how people of faith how God's people, how they operate in the present in light of this future hope. And we're going to examine the text under three headings, and they're as follows. First, we're going to consider faith's response. Secondly, we're going to consider faith's challenges. And then third, faith's goal. So would you consider first with me faith's response? Now, when we read passages like this, really any passage in the Bible, it's of vital importance that we grasp the tense and the time of each phrase, the tense and the time of, of each sentence in the Bible. Alex got at this very clearly last week. For each action, experience, and feeling that Peter describes of his readers, we ought to discern as to when they refer. It's crucial that we understand this. What do I mean? Well, in these verses, we see contrasts. We see a stark juxtaposition between the future and the, and, and the present. We see contrast between now and then, between, between the present and what's coming ahead. Salvation awaits us in the future, but fiery trials are here in the present. Jesus will return in glory, but we don't see him now. None of us see him with our eyes. Then we have praise and honor and glory that lie ahead. But now, grievous trials of all sorts. 
We see Peter, he, he, he has something like a toggle switch in his writing. He's, he's toggling back and forth between what lies ahead in the future and what we experience in the present and what we ought to feel in the present as well. He moves from future to past. And this leads Peter to celebrate how the believer's future hope manifests itself in present faithfulness. This is where we see the believer's response to hope, and that is joy. Verse 6 starts, in this you rejoice. This is a present verb. The idea is to be filled with delight, with great gladness and profound pleasure. The Christian response to certain final and future salvation is joy. The Christian's response, his reaction to coming glory is gladness. And Peter, he would have us see that this joy is not icing on the cake. It's not a tag-along to Christian experience. It's not something that's a virtue just for the exceptionally mature. Rather, it's fundamental. It's intrinsic to Christian experience. It's fundamental to the Christian life. Now, how can I say that? Why do I say that? I say that because remember how Peter opens his letter. In 1 Peter 1, verse 3, he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he's caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. You see, friends, to be born again is to be called to a living hope of salvation. It's to be called to this forward-looking hope. And then Peter, after describing that salvation, immediately the believer's proximate reaction to that salvation is joy. He says, in this salvation, you rejoice. Brothers and sisters, true happiness is the infant impulse of the new heart. It's the reaction to coming glory. To be a Christian is to experience the deepest delight in the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Our souls find our most earnest and highest satisfaction in Him. This is, by definition, Christian joy. Still, I think if you've been a Christian for any length of time, the Bible's approach to Christian joy can at times be confusing to us. How does the Christian person relate to joy? How is the believer ought to pursue joy? How does the believer attain joy? And it's here that we must understand that joy has at least two elements that we see clearly in Scripture. First, joy is a fruit of the Spirit. It's something that God's Holy Spirit wrought in the heart of the believer, where we're given new affections and new desires. It's a work holy of God. It's a work of His Spirit. It's a gift from Him. It's a fruit of the new birth. Yet at the same time, believers are also commanded to pursue joy. They're commanded to fight for joy. They're commanded to to seek out joy. David in the Psalms says to the Lord, Restore to me the joy of my salvation. The Apostle Paul says in Philippians, he says, rejoice in the Lord always. And in case you didn't hear him the first time, he says, again, I say, rejoice. We're commanded to pursue joy. Both of these elements are seen throughout Scripture. And though there's no command in our text in 1 Peter, Peter here is commending the joy of these saints. And he would commend the same joy to us. So as God's people, we ought to experience and imitate the rejoicing that we see here. We ought to try to copy this joy. We, try, try to, uh, we want to pursue this same experience. Well, that, that's hard to do because joy is a feeling. Joy is an experience. How on earth do I imitate an experience? How on earth do I imitate the feeling of joy? 
Well, brothers and sisters, it's here we must understand the object of joy. We must understand joy's object. True joy is only obtained through joy's ob- true joy's object. True joy is not motivated and conditioned by present circumstances. Rather, true joy is grounded and regulated by its source. And in the case of this text, that is future hope of salvation in Christ. That is what brings us present glory now. We often hear Christians rightly talk about fighting for joy. Uh, 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 I'm pursuing joy. I need to seek more joy in my life. And we rightly hear Christians talk about that. But Christians do not pursue joy. They do not fight for joy or seek joy by looking for joy in the abstract. That's not how you find joy. If you're a person and, and you want to pursue weight loss, you want to lose weight in 2021, you're not going to do that by pursuing weight loss. You don't go around looking for weight loss. Rather, you, you experience weight loss by pursuing those actions, those means, those causes that lead to weight loss. Manual Church, should we want to be people of joy, it will not be by staring at joy. It will be through the deepest contemplation of joy's object. This means that where we see Christian joy in Scripture, we must trace that joy to its source. We must find from what fountain that joy flows. And the Bible would lead us to believe that joy comes through the deepest contemplation of Christ. In our text, we see that joy is flowing from the fountain of future hope in Christ, a future where we have an inheritance, a future without sin, a future where every tear will be wiped away, a future without trial, a future without death, a future where Christ will be revealed to us, a future where we will forever and completely be reconciled with God. And it's consideration upon this future that leads us to joy, that leads us to experience this wonderful rejoicing that we see in this text. If I had more time, I I would like to open up to you just the manifold texts that we see in the Bible that that point to Christ's return, that, that, that point us to Christ's return in the last day. And I also would call your mind to the numerous texts that call believers to remind each other of these truths, remind each other that Christ is coming. It's a staggering amount of material. It's a staggering amount of scripture. Perhaps you've wondered why at Emmanuel, so many of the songs that we sing, either in the third or last verse, they often reference Christ's return. On that last day where we stand before the great I am. Why do we do that? Why are we constantly singing of these truths? It's because it's such a prominent theme in the Bible. Brothers and sisters, the Bible is just replete. It's packed with future talk. We're given ecstatic revelations of future glory that ought to astound us. They ought to make us marvel. And we're to picture our future in such a way that we can imagine our joy to be experienced then. And our joy becomes something like a time traveler. Our joy travels from the future to the present, and it warms our hearts with the deepest anticipation of the glory to come. What is faith's response to future hope? Faith's response to future hope is an ardent joy. Brothers and sisters, by way of application, we must learn to fasten our joy upon future glory. We must learn to derive our joy from what lies ahead. Christian, to what do you tether your joy now? To what do you tie your joy to now? What is it attached to? Does your joy arise merely from present circumstances? 
from success or material prosperity or good health? Is this what causes your joy to ebb and flow, material things, present circumstances? Or if you attach your joy to spiritual things, is it only those spiritual highs that you get here and there, that ebb and flow, that come and go? Is that what you attach your joy to? Spiritual highs are great, but is that what grounds your happiness in God? Emmanuel Church, as a church, what brings us our highest joy together? Is it when we are growing numerically? Is it our building? Is it that when we experience the physical markers that indicate success? Or is it this, that we as God's people will one day be gathered in the presence of the risen Christ, and he will be revealed to us, and we will see him as clearly as you see me right now. And is it that when we gather as we do today, and our hearts are filled with joy, it is only in anticipation of that great and final day where we will forever be with the Lord. Is this what animates our joy? Is this what we attach our joy to? Brothers and sisters, let it be so. Faith's response to hope is joy. Indeed, joy is rooted in coming salvation. So this is faith's response, point number one. Consider with me, heading number two, faith's challenges. Faith's challenges. Peter here he presents at least two distinct challenges to the Christian faith, two distinct challenges of, of the Christian's experience. And he also includes how it is that believers triumph over those challenges. First, let's consider challenge one. The first challenge is that in the present, faith is met with trials. I find it comforting, and I hope you do too. The Apostle Peter, he doesn't write in the abstract. 1 Peter, the letter of 1 Peter, it, it's that, it's a letter, it's not a treatise. It, it's a letter to real breathing people that, that bled red. And he seemed to have a personal relationship with them. These were people with jobs, these were people with struggles, these were people with children that experienced pain. They experienced temptation, they experienced fear and disappointment, loss, and grievous trials of all kinds. I think it could be a struggle, and it's easy for us and as 21st century American Christians to sense a great deal of distance between us and the first century church. We see just this great chasm between ourselves and those first and second and third generation believers. And I think one of the reasons we feel this way, one of the reasons we feel this way is we tend to have little experience with the most severe forms of persecution that we see in the Bible. None of us have experienced being whipped for our faith. None of us have received lashes for our faith or, or, or punishment, or corporal punishment for what we believe. None of us have been locked up for what we believe. We just tend to not struggle with that or have to deal with that here in the West in, in this day and age. Yet it's worth noting that the trials described here in this text, they were not in the form of authoritative persecution. Rather, scholars tend to agree the trials in 1 Peter were largely social in nature. Though this was likely still more severe than what we experience in North Carolina, the trials are, entirely, are not entirely unlike ours, and not unlike what we almost certainly will experience to a greater degree in the future. We should see ourselves in 1 Peter. We should see ourselves and have a level of solidarity with these readers. Some of us know the great social price of being a Christian. And by Christian, I don't mean just somebody who says you're a Christian. 
I'm talking about a follower of Jesus. I'm talking about a person who endeavors to follow all the commands of Christ. I'm talking about a, patter, a person who holiness matters. I'm talking about a, pat, a person who's decisively distinct from the world. I'm talking about exiles and sojourners. Friends, we're no strangers to foregone promotions because of our attachment to Christ. We're no strangers to alienation from family on account of faith. Some of you, especially some of you young people, you know what it's like to experience being a social outcast because of your commitment to Christ. You don't get calls, you don't get texts, you don't get invitations from people because they don't want to spend time with you because you're too religious and you're a goody-goody and you're too committed to Jesus. We're no strangers to suffering. Peter refers into this text of various trials. This includes a plethora of hardships. This includes sickness. This includes death. This includes poverty. This includes cancer. This includes relational strain. Various trials is all-encompassing. Yet Peter's, friends, his emphasis is not on the reality that believers experience trials so much as his emphasis is that true faith triumphs over such trials. It overcomes such trials. Genuine believers persevere through trials. And further, Peter wants to make plain that the experience of trials is by no means arbitrary. And isn't that what makes suffering so odious to us, so difficult to us? It's the question, why? Lord, why are you putting me through this? Lord, why can I find joy in you? Lord, why is my child received to, refused to put his trust in Christ? Or why have you given me this diagnosis? Why am I experiencing this pain? It's a question, why? Our suffering can feel so arbitrary, yet Peter would have us to know it's not so. Peter refers to, to trials in such a way that trials are not without a target. Affliction is not aimless. And we can know this because verse 7 starts with that precious phrase. What does verse 7 start with? He says, so that. This is the Greek word hina. It's a, it's a word of, of, of connection. It's a connecting word of purpose. And it's usually translated like that. It, it's so that. Peter says, you experience trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Emmanuel Church, trials reveal the genuineness of our faith. Faith is tested for genuineness through the crucible of trials. And the result of such trials, Peter says, is praise, glory, and honor. Praise, glory, and honor for the believer. As gold is tested by fire, faith is tested by trials. Charles Spurgeon, he, he used to say of John Bunyan, Charles Spurgeon, famous preacher, he would, he would say about John Bunyan, the Puritan who wrote Pilgrim's Progress, he, he would say, if, if you prick Bunyan... He bleeds Bibline. He made up this word Bibline, but, but, but what he meant was is Bunyan was so saturated with Scripture and, and so caught up with the glory of Christ that whatever he wrote, whatever he said, whatever he preached, whatever he said was so tinctured by the Bible. Well, here, Peter is telling us that as Christian faith is pricked by trials, it bleeds faithfulness. We see perseverance. We see endurance Trials have the express purpose of making our faith starkly apparent. 
and not just apparent to a watching world, but apparent to God himself. This is why Peter says we experience trials in order that the genuineness of our faith may be found. The idea is that suffering, afflictions, and trials, these things are are faith revealers in our life. They reveal genuine and disgenuine faith. Remember the parable of the sower, where Jesus, he, he describes that seed that falls on rocky ground. And how does he describe that seed? He says, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy, yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while. And when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. Jesus there, he's not describing a person who loses their faith. He's not describing a person who was a Christian and then became not a Christian. These are people whose faith was fake. These were people who had no meaningful attachment to Christ. But the Lord says of that seed which is sown on good soil, he says, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. He indeed bears fruit and yields in one case a hundredfold, in another sixty, and another thirty. The true believer withstands trial. Genuine faith perseveres. Now, brothers and sisters, this is not saying that Christians never fail. It's not saying that Christians never stumble. It's certainly not saying that Christians never sin. Remember who's writing this letter. It's the Apostle Peter who's writing this letter. It's the Apostle Peter who denied our Lord three times in the moment of trial. It's Peter who constantly put his foot in his mouth in front of the Lord. was constantly falling on his face. It's Peter who, at one point, from fear of the Jews, withdrew fellowship from Gentile believers. I'm unaware of a saint in the New Testament whose sin and failure is more consistently reported than the Apostle Peter. Yet through every trial, Peter grew. Through every sin and failure, he repented. The preciousness of his faith was purified through fiery trials. And he tells us that the result of this is praise and glory and honor. In fact, the very glory, this very glory is what motivated Peter's own faithfulness. And we can know this because what does Peter say in 1 Peter 5? He's instructing shepherds, he's instructing pastors in how to shepherd their flocks. And he charges them to do so knowing that when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Brothers and sisters, such an unfading glorious inheritance awaits all those who faithfully endure trials. And none of this robs Christ of his glory because what is faith? Faith is that which looks from without self to Christ. It's that which clings to Jesus. It's that which attaches to him and brings him all the glory. It's that which looks to him alone. And true faith is that which awaits the glorious revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, in the present, faith is met with trials. But faith triumphs in perseverance. Consider challenge two, this second challenge. And that's that in the present, the faithful don't see Christ. The first statement in verse eight is that though you have not seen him. That's what what, what it says in the ESV. And this is held in stark contrast to the end of verse seven. How does verse seven go? Peter says, 
He says that your faith may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ, though you have not seen him. Brothers and sisters, on the last day, we will see Jesus. On the last day, every tear will be wiped away. On the last day, all things will be made right. On the last day, we will be in the presence of the Lord. But there's just one problem. We live now. We live in the present. We operate currently in the present time, and we're not in the last day. We don't see Christ now. He's not revealed to us. And though we have been united to Christ in an objective way, we just don't see Jesus. This is why I love Peter. Peter is so practical. Peter is so realistic about what really challenges those in Christ. I mean, this is Christianity 101, isn't it? None of us have seen Jesus physically. We walk by faith and not by sight. And though it's nonetheless true that we're united with Christ and we have a certain hope, right now we live in the in-between. We live in what theologians call the already and not yet. And one of the most fundamental challenges of this present time is that we just don't see Christ. Yet Peter encourages these saints. He encourages us in verse 8 that such a challenge in no way inhibits the believer's communion with Christ. This sobering challenge that we can't see Jesus, it does not hinder our fellowship with Christ. Though our physical eyes don't see Christ, we respond to him now. We relate to him now. We experience him now. We rejoice in him now. We abide and commune with him now. Faith triumphs over our blindness. That is that Though none of us here have seen Christ with our eyes, we love him, and we believe in him, and we rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Consider first this idea that you love him. Peter says, though you have not seen him, you love him. The emphasis here is that even though these believers never knew the historical Jesus, they loved him. That's why he writes that in the past tense, though you have not seen him. This was some 30 years or so after Jesus had died and and rose again. There would have been people during this time that could remember what Jesus looked like. They could remember what he sounded like. They heard his voice. They, they, They felt him. They breathed the same air. Yet Peter, he commends these saints, that though they never laid sight upon the body of Christ, that they love him. They had an ardent affection for the Lord. Then he says, though you do not see him now, you believe him. The tense changes. Peter says that though you do not now see him, you believe in him. That's to say that these Christians were vitally attached to Christ by faith. They believed who he is, what he's done, and where he is, and what he will do. They have a personal relationship to him through faith. And Peter here, he's commending them. He's commending them that despite the liability of diminished sight, they believe in Christ. They realize they walk by faith and not by sight. That's exactly how we walk. And friends, we know that Peter here, he's not the first to commend such faith. Rather, the Lord himself commended such faith. Do you remember John 20? Remember Thomas? Thomas who said, unless I see the master's hands, unless I see his pierced side and his feet, unless I can lay my fingers and press them into the wounds, I'll never believe. That's what Thomas said. And then you remember the Lord Jesus, he he revealed himself to Thomas. And what did Thomas say? He said, my Lord and my God. 
And do you remember what Jesus said after that? He said, have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen me and yet believed. Friends, those of us who have not seen the Lord who hope in Christ, those of us who trust in him by faith, they're not commended by Christ because they check their brains at the door, because they don't think seeing matters. Jesus does not say, blessed are those who make that blind leap of faith. Jesus is saying, blessed are those who trust the good news, the good news that is true, the good news that is founded, the good news that gives life. You found Scripture's testimony of the Lord and you believe it. You found its testimony to be true and good and you rejoice in it. You love him and you believe in him. The Spirit has given us sight to lay hold of Christ in faith and Jesus says these people are blessed. Though these saints don't see Christ, Peter says they love him. Peter says they believe in him. But even more than this, they rejoice. Faith triumphs with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Peter says it's filled with glory. This joy that is filled with future glory. As we've seen already, this is primarily forward-looking joy, right? In this you rejoice, this future coming salvation. Joy is responsive to future hope of salvation. And such joy, as we know, it's a result of the new birth. That's why the Apostle Paul, he can say in Romans 5, he can say that we have obtained access to God through faith in Christ, and we rejoice. We rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. What is it that animates our joy, friends? What is it that, that fills our joy? Our joy is filled with hope of glory. That's what fills us, this future hope. And Peter says it's inexpressible. He says it's inexpressible. I wonder, have you ever been spellbound? Have you ever seen something and marveled? Have you ever seen something so glorious and then had to be tasked to explain it to somebody? We have that phrase that a, a picture is worth a thousand words, right? What, what does that mean? What that means is that that there's such sight and experience that can't be summarized in words. And even if we had a picture, it would not do it any near any justice because that sight is inexpressible. Friends, this is how Peter describes our joy. He says it's inexpressible. How am I to explain inexpressible? It's exactly that. It's inexpressible. Peter's point is this, that even though the saints do not see Christ. In the present time, they experience a profound pleasure. They experience a joy, a distinct delight in Christ that words cannot constrain. It's ecstatic. It's vibrant. It's palpable. You can taste it. It's overflowing their joy. I said earlier that we'd be wise to recognize who's writing this letter, right? It's the Apostle Peter who wrote this letter. And Peter here, he highlights that these, these, these saints that they had not seen Christ. Yet Peter had seen Christ. Peter had seen Jesus perform miracles. Peter had engaged in ministry with the Lord. Peter could remember what Christ's voice sounded like. He could remember what he felt when the Lord Jesus looked at him and said, follow me. He could remember the expression on the Lord's face when he said, Simon Peter, I have prayed for you that your faith 
may not fail, and when you turn again, strengthen your brothers. He could remember, Peter could remember what he felt when the Lord said to him, not once, not twice, not three times, feed my lambs. Peter had an intimate relationship with the Lord. He was close to the Lord. There's no one in the New Testament that interacted more with the incarnate Lord than Peter. The Lord was tender to him. He was profoundly personal to him. Brothers and sisters, this is my point. As Peter is writing to encourage these saints in their relationship to Christ, he didn't see himself in any way privileged above them. He didn't see himself as privileged beyond them because he saw the Lord. He didn't see himself as supremely advantaged for his experience with Christ in the flesh. Rather, Peter is celebrating that every resource for meaningful fellowship with the Lord was offered to them. They could love him. They could believe in him. They could rejoice in him. And more than this, these saints experienced that fellowship in such a way that they loved and they rejoiced with joy that was inexpressible. Joy that was inexpressible and filled with glory. Brothers and sisters, by way of application here, we must lay no restraints upon our fellowship with Christ in this time. In the present time, the here and now, we must lay no restraints on our fellowship with Christ. Peter says these saints love Christ. He says they believed in him. He says that their joy in Christ is inexpressible. In this life, our fellowship with Christ, it knows no bounds. Though the Bible calls on Christians to look forward to future glory in Christ, this is not to prevent our personal experience of him now. And friends, we should want our joy to be greater. We should want our joy to abound. We should want our joy to grow. I think many of us can be sobered by texts like this. We can find texts like this at times to be discouraging. And I think the reason why some of us may feel that way is because we look at this glorious joy and this hope that Peter describes that these saints had. And then we look at our own joy. And we look at our own lives. And when we think of joy that's inexpressible, we look at our own joy and we think, my joy is all too expressible. My joy is all too mundane. I don't have joy like that. My joy ebbs and flows. My passion in Christ, it often flickers and fails. I'll never have joy like that, Peter. Well, friends, first we must understand. We must understand that those who are in Christ, Christians are those that ought to be ever increasing in joy. Joy is spoken of in quantitative terms in the Bible. The Apostle John, he wrote his letters in order that your joy might be complete. Apostle Paul, he, he, he spoke of believers being filled with more and more joy. The healthy Christian is the happy Christian. The healthy Christian is not only the happy Christian, but the Christian who is ever growing in happiness, whose joy in the Lord is abounding. So Christian, please make no treaty with joy's absence in your heart. Rather, purpose in your heart and plead with God, Lord, I want my joy to be greater. I want my joy to abound. I want to rejoice to such an extent that my feelings are beyond the limits of human expression. I want this joy. I need this joy. I gotta have this joy. Lord, please help me. I want to grow. And should we purpose to pursue greater joy, it will be through contemplation of the Lord himself and that salvation that is to be seen on the last day and where he will be revealed to us 
and the faith will be made sight. Christian, if you are in Christ, there's nothing that holds you back from inexpressible and glorified joy. Apostle Paul has a wonderful statement in Colossians 3 where he says, he says, Christ is all and he's in all. Christ is all and in all. And there are so many implications to that statement, but one of them is that, that the playing field of fellowship with Christ and communion with Christ, it's a level playing field. There's nothing that holds you back from fellowship with the Lord. There's nothing in your background. There's nothing in your experience. There's nothing in your intelligence. There's nothing in your race. Nothing that holds you back from the most sincere fellowship with the Lord Jesus and an ever-increasing joy in Him. We've considered faith's response to hope. We've seen faith's triumphs and challenges. Consider lastly and very briefly, faith's goal. Faith's goal is salvation. Peter says in verse 9, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. That word obtaining in the ESV, it's probably better translated receiving. The idea is that you are receiving the end of your faith, the, the salvation of your souls. And I say that, one of the reasons I say that is every other use of that word in, in Paul and Peter's writing is, is translated as receiving. The plain thing, brothers and sisters, to acknowledge here is that the word receiving or obtaining, it's present. It's in the present tense. With as forward-looking as this text has been so far, you might expect for Peter to say something like, you rejoice with joy that is inexpressible, unto the end that you will obtain the salvation of your souls, like unto some future goal. But he says obtaining. He uses a present verb. It's a present participle. It's united to the tense of the previous verbs. Which means that just as these saints love Christ in the present, in the now, just as these saints believe in Christ, just as they rejoice in him, they are receiving the end of their faith, the very salvation of their souls, the goal of their faith, the salvation of their souls. Yes, friends, complete and final salvation will only be realized on the last day. But there is a glorious foretaste there's a glorious experience of Christ now. There's a glorious experience of salvation now. And it's this present foretaste that makes the Christian life possible. It's this present foretaste that withstands that, ca- that cancer diagnosis, that withstands job loss, that withstands being socially outcast, that withstands social distance, that withstands the pain of a faithless child. It's the present foretaste that leads us to withstand all of these things. This present foretaste of salvation that overcomes various trials. That's why the Lord Jesus says in Luke 18, he says, truly, truly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God. And we can insert based on 1 Peter, there are no exiles. There are no sojourners that have forsaken all for the kingdom of God who were not received many more times in this time. In this time and in the age to come eternal life. Brothers and sisters, there is a glorious salvation that lies ahead, but there is a salvation that we experience now. Because of hope of future salvation, the believer responds with present perseverance, with present love, 
and with present joy. Would you pray with me? Oh, Father, how much do we need joy? We need a joy that lasts, Lord. We need a joy that's grounded, that is foundationed in your salvation. Lord, please, we pray that you would give us sight of Christ, that you would help us to see the riches of his mercy and this, this glorious inheritance that lies ahead. And Father, we pray that this future hope would fill us so much with joy that we could say that though we don't see him now, we love him. Though we don't see him now, our faith is fixed upon him. Our sight is fixed upon him. And though we don't see him now, Lord, we rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Lord, give us higher thoughts of you and fill us now. Lord, be with our worship and our singing, we pray our communion with you in a few moments. We pray in Christ's name, amen.